We will get a vaccine and a drug treatment eventually, but by then, millions of people are going to have already gotten this virus and hundreds of thousands will likely have died of it. It's not enough. If we want to actually contain these epidemics of new pathogens, we need to look at the broader drivers. We need to look at how we're moving around and how we're interacting with the environment and change those things. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. In recent weeks, as COVID-19 has killed thousands, brought public life to a standstill, and crippled global markets, the pandemic has been called a black swan, a term investors use to describe severe events that are unpredictable and extremely rare. But this coronavirus was no black swan to the scientists and journalists, including our guest, investigative journalist Sonia Shaw, who were paying attention to the environmental, social, and political conditions that fuel the eruption and spread of infectious diseases. They've been warning the public for years of the mounting risk of a pandemic like COVID-19 and the ways in which our treatment of animals and our planet can cause unseen but deadly consequences. It's now widely known that COVID-19 originated in wild animals before jumping the species barrier to humankind. It's not alone. Roughly two-thirds of all emerging infectious diseases began in the bodies of animals, mostly wildlife. Microbes have spilled over from animals to humans for time immemorial. But as humans dominate the biosphere, the pace at which pathogens are making that jump is getting faster and faster. SARS, Zika, H1N1, Ebola, HIV, and now COVID-19 can all be traced to how we are interacting with animals and their habitats. Sonia Shaw has spent years diving into the origins of pandemics and the complex interplay between humans, animals, and pathogens. The disease backstories that Shaw has investigated are powerful illustrations of the devastating costs of treating human health as independent of animal and planetary health. Shaw is the author of five critically acclaimed and prize-winning books on science, medicine, human rights, and international politics. Her work has been aptly called bracingly intelligent by Nature and dazzlingly original by Naomi Klein. Shaw's superb 2017 book, Pandemic, Tracking Contagions from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond, tells the history of viral infections that have ravaged humanity, drawing parallels between cholera and today's emerging infectious diseases. Her new book, The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move, comes out in June 2020. It explores the unfolding history and science of human, plant, and animal migration and predicts its life-saving power in the age of climate change. Sonia Shaw, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Nice to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you on and to talk to you about your incredible work as we record remotely from our makeshift home studios instead of the broadcast studio in response to COVID-19. And as we sit here in social isolation, it's really striking how extraordinarily prescient your 2017 book, Pandemic, was, which tracked the origins of past diseases and warned about the rise of new ones. How have the dynamics you discussed in that book played out over the last few months? Well, unfortunately, it's played out exactly as you know a lot of my sources said it would. We're seeing a pathogen that's emerged out of wildlife, make a spillover in, in China, which is where, of course, the last SARS pathogen emerged from as well. It's traveling the world on our flight network, 
and in our migratory pathways, and it's being amplified in our crowded cities. And then we're also seeing the same kind of problems with the government response or social response where people are blaming each other, there's scapegoating, there's corruption involved, you know, that all of these challenges that are preventing us from having a unified collective response. So, you know, unfortunately, it's just exactly the pandemic that everyone feared happening is is actually happening. I mean, when I was putting the book together, one of the things I always ask my sources was, which pathogen kind of keeps you up at night? Like, what's the what's the one that you think will be the next big one? And they almost all had the same two answers. One was a highly drug-resistant bacterial pathogen, you know, the quote-unquote superbug idea. And the second one was a respiratory virus like influenza, but just a little bit more deadly. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. In your book, you talk about how we are now in the age of pandemics, where we have this accelerating rate of emerging infectious diseases, which is contrary to what people thought for a long time, where you describe there's this popular theory of epidemiological transition, where wealthy Western or largely Western countries would effectively move beyond in their disease profile pandemics like this and be in kind of a post-infection era. And then along came HIV in the early 1980s and West Nile and SARS and Ebola and H1N1 and on and on and on. Why is that theory proven to be false? Well, the theory was that the age of antibiotics and sanitation and, you know, a functioning healthcare system would vanquish infectious diseases altogether. And that, in fact, did happen for a certain amount of time. You know, we were able to tame a lot of infections that had taken huge tolls on our populations through, you know, not just antibiotics and vaccines, but also just things like separating our waste from our food and water. Um, Now, those are things that we did not transport to the rest of the world, right? So there's like billions of people in the world to this day who don't have access to adequate sanitation and clean water, potable water. That's kind of a standing calamity for those societies. And pathogens continue to take advantage of that. But at least in a few Western industrialized countries, the idea was that we didn't have to think about this anymore. And to the extent that, you know, if you think about like what people will pay as sort of a proxy for how much they value it, you know, we would pay maybe 50 bucks tops for a course of antibiotics that literally saves your life, as opposed to, say, um, a cancer treatment that might extend your life for a couple weeks, a couple months. People will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. And drug makers know that. So there's this just sense of infection being this sort of old world thing of the past that we don't need to deal with. And I think we're seeing the sort of legacy of those decades of tranquility about infections. We're seeing the legacy of that today where we're just not prepared. Yeah, and getting to what's really driving a lot of this, we're very much changing the nature and frequency of human-animal interactions through pursuits like you know wildlife trade, deforestation, land use change, uh, industrial farming. Can you talk about how these activities and our kind of unprecedented relationship with nature are propelling the emergence and transmission of novel and known human diseases? The deep issue here, the underlying driver, is the fact that our footprint has become so large on the planet. We've used up over half of the planet's surface has covered up with our farms, our towns, our cities, our industrial activities, etc. Just in the past few decades, we've swallowed up another 20 some odd percent of the landscape. And so 
you know, that's why we're losing so many species as, you know, hundreds of species every day, because we're just destroying their, their habitat where they can live. But the ones that don't just disappear, they have to hang on in these smaller and smaller fragments of habitat that we've left for them, essentially. And those fragments are more you know, in closer contact with where we live, where our farms and our towns are. And so when you cut down the jungle where bats live, they don't just go away. They come and roost in the trees in your backyard and your garden and your farms instead. And that just increases the probability that we'll have different, you know, these novel, intimate interactions with these wild species, whether it's through wildlife trade or, you know, bringing them into market as in a wet market or if it's bushmeat hunting or just casual contact. A kid playing outside near a tree where bats are known to roost can pick up a piece of fruit. It could have some bat saliva on it or some bat poo on it. They get it on their hands. They put their hands in their mouth and that's it. That is the bridge that has been built between the bat's body and the human body. Um, And that is exactly how the Ebola outbreak of 2014 started in West Africa. And that's similar to how the Nipah virus outbreak occurred also, right, in Malaysia? Right. So the, the Nipah virus is another spillover pathogen from bats. And that that has an even more sort of complicated epidemiology where it was dropping out of bats, bat poo, dropping into pigs' troughs because these farms had expanded into bat territory. And so the pigs were all being fed underneath these trees where bats were roosting. And so the pigs were getting exposed to bat microbes through that novel intimate contact. And then the pigs were getting sick and then the pigs were actually infecting the human farmers. And that's how at least part of the Nipah, some of the Nipah outbreaks sort of proceeded that way. So, you know, there's these just these idiosyncratic ways in which the process occurs of moving from an animal body into a human body. But the fact is like when we're closer and closer together and they have less habitat where they can live sort of far away from us, all of those things just become more likely. And because of this close relationship between pathogens and animals, I think especially with COVID-19, we're seeing, uh, as you mentioned, this scapegoating that's happening, blaming whether it's bats or or pangolins or deer, other animals that might be causing different diseases. How are you seeing that play out in response to COVID-19? And why, as you've written about in The Nation, is that wrong? I mean, I think we see it with the, the the desperate search for which animal, you know, which animal is it that, you know, that we can blame for this. And it's re- really unfortunate that a lot of the novel pathogens that we're, we happen to have spillovers right now do come from bats because bats have this sort of fearsome reputation in our mythology and our legends and our sort of popular culture as being these harbingers of death or um, disease. But in fact, like these microbes have been living inside of those animals' bodies for decades, centuries, however long, and we didn't get disease from them. The reason we're getting disease from them is not because those microbes are living in animals' bodies with the malevolent intent that they want to you know, come out and get us, but because they're harmless in their natural habitat, but when they come into ours, it's a novel place. Microbes do what microbes do, which is that they start to replicate and multiply because you know they're they're living things also, um, and they're expanding into these novel new territories. And you know when they do that, that's what makes us sick. So these are microbes that are not pathogenic in their ordinary natural habitat, but they become pathogenic when they move into new places. And so we're creating those opportunities for them. In your book, 
pandemic, which I truly can't recommend highly enough to people, you tell the riveting story of cholera, which also began as an animal microbe. And you tell it in conjunction with telling the story of these emerging infectious diseases of the last few decades to try to illuminate the multi-stage process of how animal microbes become you know, massive and devastating human pathogens. Can you tell us a bit about that story and where cholera originated? Yeah, so cholera, we think of it as sort of a poor person's disease today, and that that is mostly true. But when it first emerged in the 19th century, it was like coronavirus today. It, it infected the most sort of cutting edge, advanced cities of its time. New York, London, Paris, et cetera, had massive cholera outbreaks in the 19th century. And cholera is actually a, a marine bacteria. It, it lives in, in conjunction with copepods, which are sort of plankton that float around in estuaries in waters that are mostly half salty, half fresh, quite warm. Places like the Bay of Bengal, for example, in South Asia. This is a place where the land abutting it around where what is now Bangladesh was once covered with um, mangrove forests, swamps. You know, people didn't live in places like that. So we didn't have cholera for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer. The bacteria existed, but we didn't have cholera in human societies because people didn't live in places where they would come into contact with salty, you know, this brackish warm water where usually you'd find mangroves and swamps, right? Like people don't live in, didn't live in swamplands and wetlands um, until quite recently. Um, and so what happened in the Sundarbans area, which is in the Bay of Bengal, is the British Raj decided to cut all those mangroves down and turn them into rice farms. And so quite suddenly people came into novel, intimate contact with this bacteria-rich salty water. And as they did that, you know, over and over again, the bacteria started to adapt to the human body. You know, that's the, a process of um, that, that kind of bacteria-rich water entering into their wells, or maybe a fisherman getting some salt water in their face and drinking a, a little bit. Over and over again, that happens, and the bacteria starts to adapt to the human body and evolve. And that's how cholera turned into, you know, this fearsome pathogen starting out as a very harmless marine microbe that actually helped uh, recycle nutrients in its natural environment. But in humans, of course, it, it does something very different. Um, it, it clings to the interior lining of your gut and it actually reverses the normal functioning of that organ so that instead of sort of replenishing the body's tissues with fluids, if you're infected with cholera bacteria, your body will... Um, extract fluids, your gut will extract fluids and expel them in a massive torrent of um, watery diarrhea and vomiting. Sorry, sorry to say. And so that's how the first outbreak of cholera started. It was in 1817 in the Bay of Bengal area in Sundarbans. Um, and then it just traveled, you know, in the bodies of traders and armies and travelers up into Russia and then over into Europe and the cities of the old world and then uh, across the Atlantic on the new steamships and packet ships that we had developed at that time and then penetrated the rest of North America as well. And the living conditions that people were living in in cities like New York at the time were especially conducive to transmitting cholera. Can you describe you know, some of those conditions and, and what it was that really made this such a, a longstanding problem? There's, there's two sort of two elements to that. One is that we had developed the steam engine, of course, and we started building canals. So North America was pretty much impenetrable before canals were built, really. We had 
navigable rivers, but you could kind of go down. You can't go, really easily go back up. And then, of course, they were separated by mountain, you know, mountain ranges like the Appalachians, for example, and other mountain ranges in the country. So it wasn't very easy to sort of get across, get around in uh, over the continent of North America. But the steam engine changed all that, and this era of canals began with the Industrial Age. And 1825, the Erie Canal opened. Um, and that really connected all of the waterways of the Atlantic with sort of the interior of the Mississippi Valley. Um, and it was just in time for cholera to come over and, you know, really come down the canals and get into some of these newly industrializing cities. People were moving out of the countryside into cities for the new factory jobs, you know, also made possible by the coal age and the coming oil age. And there wasn't any room to sprawl because we didn't have, you know, train systems and and cars and highways. So everyone had to kind of live near work or the possibility of work. And so you had extremely crowded cities like uh, 19th century New York, which was I think it was six times more crowded than modern day Tokyo today. Um, But of course, people did not develop new ways of handling their human waste. They used what they used in the the countryside. They brought that into the city. And so I think it was something like one-sixth of the city of New York in the 19th century was covered with cesspools, privies, and outhouses. And there weren't any rules that you had to, you know, empty any of this stuff out or, and there's no plumbing. And so the bacterial pathogen like cholera, which spreads through food and water that's contaminated by human waste, could really, once it entered into cities like that, it could just absolutely explode. And that's what happened again and again over the course of the better part of a century. You draw a parallel in the book between this issue of crowds with the spread of cholera and types of crowding we have today, both in human slums, but also among animals in dense factory farms. How do you see the advantages of of crowds for pathogens playing out in situations like that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're urbanizing at a huge rate today. So we have a lot of crowding of people happening. And, and I think by 2030, the majority of humans will are likely to live in giant cities. Although who knows what will happen after this pandemic, you know, that might alter our settlement patterns. But up until now, that was the trajectory. About 2 billion people living in slums by 2030. But we're not just crowding people together. We're also crowding our animals together. Um, We have more livestock today than in the last 10,000 years of domestication until 1960 combined, which of course, I don't need to tell you guys. And these animals are living in, you know, basically the animal equivalent of a slum, which is factory farms where you have millions of animals crowded together. Um, and so, you know, in, in human slums, we have people breathing each other on each other more, they're touching each other more, they're more likely to be exposed to each other's waste. And all of those social contexts create opportunities for pathogens to spread. And it's the same thing in factory farms where you have, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of chickens, captive chickens packed closely together. They're breathing each other more, they're touching each other more, and they're more frequently being exposed to each other's waste. So when a microbe enters into a captive, crowded population like that, it can just explode. And that's what happens, for example, with avian influenza, which is a virus of wild waterfowl. It doesn't make wild waterfowl sick, but say you have you know, a duck flying over a factory farm in China, for example, and and a little bit of poo falls into that factory farm and some chickens get it, it spills over into those chickens and it starts to spread really rapidly because they're so closely packed together. And 
every time it moves from one chicken to the next, it's replicating and it's mutating and it's becoming more and more virulent. Um, and that process is so reliable that scientists can actually replicate it in a lab um, where you take an avian influenza that isn't very pathogenic and you pass it through a few generations of chickens and it becomes more virulent, more deadly. And so that's why we have this increasing frequency of um, highly virulent forms of avian influenza emerging as well. Um, and some of those can infect humans as you know, like H5N7 and a bunch of other ones. So actually in the lead up to the coronavirus pandemic, when I was writing my book, um, most experts said that was the process that they thought would result in the next pandemic causing pathogen, which would be one of these avian influenzas because the frequency had become, you know, it was getting higher and higher. One of the most frustrating aspects of the story you tell about cholera is you know, they, they seem to be on the precipice a number of times of getting these better public works uh, and, and better uh, water sanitation systems built, but it didn't end up happening for a variety of reasons, especially related to kind of who controlled the economic power. And you, you describe, you know, how societies have to choose between certain private costs and, and uncertain public benefits. And it was it was very frustrating in the cholera context, but it's especially frustrating now when we have germ theory and we better understand, you know, just what you were talking about, you know, how these diseases could spread in something like a factory farm. Why is it that we're not, you know, adopting the the solutions or the pathways that will avoid something like this? I mean, I think the, the antibiotic era and the era of sort of modern medicines where we have this presumption that we can come up with, you know, the miracle drug, the wonder pill, the one shot that will cure everything, right? So we've been kind of trained by modern medicine over the past 50 years or so to expect that. And I think the rise of modern medicine and biomedical commodities is really the central kind of output of our medical system has really devalued all of the public health kinds of interventions that saved us from diseases and epidemics like cholera and the rest of them. So, and I think we see that today too, where there's a reluctance to understand that, oh, wait, we just have to change our behavior to deal with this. You know, we're not going to have a miracle drug and a vaccine in time. That's actually what interested me in emerging diseases more generally is because they come on so quickly, you know, you don't have a month, you don't have a year or 18 months to come up with a vaccine for a novel pathogen. You just have to change your behavior in ways that make it impossible for the pathogen to spread. But it creates this tension, especially in industrialized countries where we really expect there to be a biomedical product that we can just go to the store and buy and not have to think about sort of the broader you know, social and political factors that actually make us healthy or unhealthy. Reading the section of your book about how New York City responded to the cholera outbreaks was really fascinating because you see in a lot of ways the big failures that they had then repeating themselves now, where you tell in the book how New York City could have built a public waterworks many decades before they actually did, but didn't. And they could have had more severe quarantines, but didn't. And the politicians could have implemented much better and more rigorous alerts, but they didn't want to do that or spread word about the disease's arrival and spread because they were scared of disrupting trade. And I'm wondering, do you see those same failures playing out today? And or what are the differences in how we're responding to COVID-19 versus how people responded to cholera? The politics are the same, right? So there's still this tension between 
the uncertain future benefits of constraining the economy right now. So there's this reluctance to do that. And then and then you also see governments being unsure of like, you know, well, how, how bad do we have to really suffer in economically in order to get rid of this, you know, public health disaster unfolding, slowly unfolding before our eyes? The politics are pretty much exactly the same as they were in the past. They have not changed because they're driven by fundamental sort of power imbalances between like, how much do we value business versus how much do we value sort of public health and public benefits? Um, and I think that tension is still there in society and has not really appreciably changed. We've strengthened our public health infrastructure in a lot of ways because we have a much more extensive healthcare system today than we did in the 19th century, of course. And then our science is so much better. So in the time of cholera, it took years and years and years for people to even understand that cholera was carried in the water and that it was carried by a bacteria. That took a long time to figure out. Um, they had other hints, of course, and they could have done something about it anyway. But, you know, actually unraveling the science of it took a long time. Today, we know instantly, you know, within like, I mean, I want to say weeks, but maybe even faster, as soon as these cases are isolated, it becomes clear to our scientists very rapidly, how are they spreading between us? I mean, even you know, with something like coronavirus is fairly straightforward because it's spread through respiration. So people breathing on each other and coughing on each other. Um, and we're still trying to unravel, well, does it spread between pregnant women and their children? Does it spread through secretions like blood or, you know, sexual transmission? Like all of those sort of secondary pathways are still, we're still trying to figure all that out. But, you know, the main issue of how it spreads has been resolved. Like that was solved really early on. And even in something like Zika, which is a much more cryptic transmission process where it's not something that you just get, but you have to get bitten by a mosquito and then you have you have to wait nine months and then your baby is born and then you're like, ah, okay, that's what happened, right? Like the connection is much more obscure. But even that was unraveled really quickly. And so we have many more opportunities today to make changes that would arrest the spread of these pathogens because we understand so much more about them really quickly. Um, we didn't have that in the 19th century. So our opportunities are much greater today. But at the same time, we have this huge imbalance of power between sort of private economic interests and in the interests of um, you know, public health. Will you share the story of the Manhattan Company in, in New York City? So what happened is the state of New York wanted to charter a company to provide piped drinking water to the people of New York. And so the company that they chartered to do that um, was this company called the Manhattan Company. And instead of sort of sinking their well upstate, sort of away from the city where they knew the water would taste better and would be fresher and it would be less filthy, they instead sank their well in the middle of a slum in the very middle of South Manhattan, the slum that was called Five Points, which is now, you know, it's been raised, um, but it's around where Chinatown is in Manhattan. <clears throat> they sank their well there. That was sort of the one part of New York that wasn't underlain with bedrock. Um, it was built on what was once a pond that had been filled up with garbage and the slum had been built on top of that. So the water was very easily contaminated by all of the sort of cesspools and leaky privies that were on top of it. But that's where they sank the well. And then they distributed that water to one third of the people of New York. You know, they did that throughout the cholera epidemics of the 19th century in New York over 80 years. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to save money. It would have been more expensive to do the upstream well. They wanted to save money because they wanted to start a bank 
which they did. And that was the Bank of the Manhattan Company, which is now the most, I think it's the biggest bank in America. Maybe it's J.P. Morgan Chase now. That's an amazing story. And it's startling, too, because you see that we had the knowledge in that case, not only of led by the one of the founders of epidemiology, John Snow, of how feces and water spreads this disease. We also had the knowledge of how to build a waterworks that would have effectively prevented this, and yet no one acted on it. And it's amazing to think about that vis-a-vis our modern animal feces problem, which you discuss in the book, both with dog waste, which was fascinating. I had no idea the degree of uh, what a problem that can be in certain areas of the country, but also, um, and perhaps especially livestock waste. Could you explain how the sanitary revolution has not reached those areas yet? You know, it's interesting because in human sanitation, we, when we started crowding together in cities, you know, during the industrial era, um, we kind of brought our old ways of managing waste into the new place. We just sort of transplanted it. And of course, in the countryside, we used basically cesspools. and, And that was, you know, that made a certain amount of sense because there's enough room for human waste to rot undisturbed. But then you bring that into a city where you have like thousands of people per square kilometer and it becomes like a total disaster. Well, that's sort of similar to what I see happening in factory farms as well, where we have the old ways of managing animal manure, which is basically to use it as fertilizer, right? Just spread it on your crops. Um, But now, of course, we have so many more of these domesticated livestock um, that's far more manure than we can possibly use on our croplands. There's just not enough croplands to absorb all this stuff. And so instead of kind of coming up with a new system, we're just collecting it all in these unlined pits, you know, that are called manure lagoons, as you know. And so whenever there's an environmental disturbance of any kind, like this material can get out into the environment, like if there's a storm or flooding or, or anything like that. And that's one reason why we have a bunch of pathogens that are already taking advantage of that, you know, um, Shiga toxin producing E. coli, for example, is something, it's it's a microbe that is in a, over half of American cattle on feedlots have Shiga toxin producing E. coli. It doesn't make them sick, but because cattle waste so frequently contaminates our food and water because of spillovers from these manure lagoons, um, we have about 70,000 Americans infected with Shiga toxin producing E. coli every year. And of course, in us, it can lead to um, all kinds of problems, you know, it can even be life-threatening. So, and and that's just one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other um, pathogens that can spread this way. And it's, you know, they're not pathogens in animal bodies, but it's yet another pathway by which animal microbes can get into human microbes. And it's a function of the fact that, you know, our livestock population is just so huge now. And it's not just livestock as well. It's, you know, the the waste management crisis may seem something that is in the hands of uh, farmers, but you write that a lot of dog owners, for example, consider dog waste to be harmless or, or usable as fertilizer. And you, you write the really alarming statistic that 44% of dog owners don't make any attempt to collect or contain their dog's waste at all. Can you talk about the impacts that, you know, even our kind of family pets like dogs have on these pathogens? The thing that really struck me most about our modern relationship with pet waste is that it really it really illuminated for me how, you know, when you think about like how people lived in the 19th century when there's, you know, just like leaky outhouses everywhere, thousands of people using them, nobody's emptying it out. So there's sort of human waste kind of contaminated everywhere. 
it sounds so horrible. And it's amazing to think, how did we put up with that? You know, how did people tolerate that? It seems completely intolerable. But you see how modern people's relationship is with their pet waste. And it then you, you kind of get a little insight into it because people feel like it's no big deal. You know, it's become totally normalized. And so there's a, a number of different pathogens that are in pet waste that that people are getting and we just don't see it. We have about 14% of Americans over the age of six are infected with, for example, Toxicara canis, which is, you know, common in dogs. It's the dog roundworm. It comes out in their feces and then that can contaminate soil and water for years. So if you just play in the soil and you get a little bit of that on your hands, it can enter into your body. So a lot of people probably are infected and just don't know. Um, So we're only finding that out because of sort of academic studies looking into it, right? And it seems to be linked to asthma and a range of other neurological issues, but probably with a time lag. So it's not like immediately obvious that that's why you have it. So a lot of these things are diluted by the fact that there's these, you know, it takes time for them to um, express their outcome in people's bodies. And so you need, and so that's not the kind of, we don't really surveil for those kinds of microbes, right? We surveil for microbes that are actually causing like epidemics right now. I would assume that there's a lot more beyond just this one that we know about or one or two that we know about. Yeah, that's, that is incredibly stunning. You write in the book too, and have written in other articles, including for Yale E360, about how climate change is amplifying the burden and accelerating the emergence and reemergence of diseases. And at one point in pandemic, you write, if there's any single historical development that actuated all of the various ways humanity contributes to pandemics, it's the harnessing of fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and gas. How is climate change contributing to pandemics? Well, one effect that I think we're going to see more in the future is the fact that climate change is making wild species move in new ways. Um, we've seen about 80% of all species are moving in some way um, in response to climate change. And so they're moving into new places and new regions, and they're going to come into new kinds of contact with the human populations that live there. So that's going to create new opportunities for microbes in our bodies to spill over into theirs and for microbes in their bodies to spill over into ours. I think the underlying issue is that the driver of our ability to invade wildlife habitat is really driven by our consumption of fossil fuels. I mean, it wouldn't be possible to do on the scale that we're doing it unless we had that surplus energy that you get from fossil fuels from this, you know, concentrated source of power that we've been using. So, you know, the climate crisis is one effect of that. It's sort of the chemistry, you know, the chemistry effect. And I feel like pandemics are kind of the biological effect of our use of fossil fuels, just because we wouldn't have been able to do either of these things if we didn't have fossil fuels, right? We wouldn't have been able to create this carb, this blanket of carbon in the air, and we wouldn't have been able to in- swallow up as much as the Earth's landscape as we have without the power of fossil fuels. So I see sort of pandemics and and the climate crisis as the bill coming due in different ways. You know, we we externalized the costs of the fossil fuel economy for many decades and we just reaped all the benefits for a long time and now, you know, now we're seeing that the externalization of those costs sort of coming due today with um, pandemics and with climate disasters. So biological disasters and climate disasters is kind of two sides of the same coin. The emergence of pathogens really does have a a striking number of parallels with the threat of climate change. You know, they're both these global, invisible threats born of our unsustainable interactions with the biosphere. 
Do you see similarities in the ways in which we need to respond to the threat of pandemics and the threat of climate change? Yeah, I think a lot is going to depend on our narratives about this pandemic, right? Because you look at how people think of where an epidemic comes from, and that is what really drives how they respond to it. It, to, To draw an example from the cholera story, in the 19th century, people thought cholera was carried by miasmas, which are these stinky airs, you know, basically bad smells. Um, And so so in the city of London, after every cholera outbreak, people would install um, water closets, which flush toilets, um, because they thought, oh, if we have this Peruvian outhouse in our home or in our, you know, alleyway, we can smell the bad smells and miasmas, and that's what's making us sick. So let's let's flush it all away so we don't have these bad smells around us. And they thought that would make them healthier. But since they thought it was the smell and not the contents of their water closets and flush toilets that were the issue, they didn't mind that they were dumping all of that stuff into their drinking water supply, um, which is what they're doing. They're dumping it all into the River Thames. And so after every cholera outbreak, they would install more flush toilets and flush more of their waste into the river, um, thus making the epidemics worse and worse and more likely to happen every time. Um, So the stories that we tell about these epidemics and pandemics really matter. And I think every epidemic is multifactorial, right? It's not just one thing. It's not, you know, even if you have a spillover from a wild animal into a human, it's not you know, it's not necessarily going to become a pandemic. You know, you also need all these other factors. You need it to be carried around. You need it to be carried around to the right place. You need that place to have uh, multiple transmission opportunities. You need a collective social response that fails in some way that allows the pathogen to continue spreading. All of those things have to kind of line up. Um, So which part of that do we sort of focus on in our storytelling about this disease? And so what I'm hoping is that what we can see is that both the climate crisis and the pandemic crisis are being driven by the same thing, which is that our global sort of consumer disposable culture, which is just using up a lot of natural resources, so much so that our atmosphere can't sustain it and microbes are finding new opportunities to make us sick. Um, So I think if that is sort of the underlying story, then we can really start to resolve two aspects of, you know, the, the disaster era that we're now entering. You talk in the book about how the idea of a war on microbes is in some ways ridiculous because we are communities of microbes, each of us, that humans arguably aren't single organisms, but rather, you know, teeming communities of of all these little animals with 10 times the number of microbial cells as our own human cells. To that effect, uh, you quote an epidemiologist named Larry Brilliant, who says that epidemics are inevitable, but pandemics are avoidable. Why is that? I mean, we live on a microbial world, right? This is a microbial planet. They were here for billions of years before our very earliest ancestors. And so we sort of emerged in this microbial soup and we've had to survive in that. And most microbes are, are you know, in our bodies and around us are either neutral or beneficial to us. There's just a few sort of rogue actors um, because of the opportunities we create that become pathogenic to us. So having infectious diseases is part of the human condition. That's not going to go away. And so we shouldn't think of microbes as these intruders, you know, that are sort of invading our pristine, sanitized interior spaces. That's not what's happening. It's not a process of invasion. Um, And I think, you know, that's kind of the common narrative of, you know, that there's this like outside 
foreign microbial intruder and we have to kind of keep them out, close the borders, don't let them in the body, sanitize everything. And that's not really an accurate assessment of what's going on. It's not a matter of invasion from outside. It's us creating pathways that these microbes then take advantage of. So, you know, infectious diseases are going to happen, but do we have to have epidemics that start in one part of the world and then spread like a wave across populations and and continents and oceans? No, we don't. Not at all. We would certainly still have eruptions of infectious disease around everywhere. That's always going to happen. But we certainly don't have to spread these things around and we certainly don't have to create opportunities for them to spread so robustly among us that we you know, we have these conflagrations now that we can't control. We don't have enough tools to control them anymore. A really fascinating discussion in your book is uh, about how pathogens and even pandemics have made us human. Um, You know, there's genetic evidence that Homo sapiens divergence from other species may have stemmed from things like a pandemic. And even evidence that things like culture and local cultures are an evolutionary adaptation to responding to disease. Can you talk about how pandemics and and humans have had this history since time immemorial? There's a bunch of theories about how microbes, the pressure of pathogens, and of course, you know, in our evolution, just like everything else, there are certain things that play an outsized role on sort of selecting for different behaviors and and different physiologies. And of course, the climate is one of those. Predators is one of those. And parasites, pathogens are a third. And they play a really influential role in, you know, how our bodies function, the shapes of our bodies, and even according to a lot of a variety of theories, our culture, our the way we reproduce sexually, the way we pick our mates, you know, and of course, then historically playing this huge role. Um, in terms of, you know, which armies win and which armies lose and who's the invaders and who's the invaded and and all of that. One of the things that really interests me and it connected to my new book about migration is the role of pathogens as a driver of xenophobia. And there's been all these interesting studies showing that if you arouse people's awareness of pathogens around them, like, you know, for example, you, you show them a picture of someone sneezing or something like that. And then you ask them questions about like the design to kind of reveal their levels of ethnocentrism and xenophobia, that just by making them more aware of pathogens around them, they will express more ethnocentrist and xenophobic sentiments afterwards. And there's theories about why that might be, which is that, you know, we we kind of adapt to the pathogens that are around us. You know, we're seeing that violent process happening right now on a global scale where, you know, right now we're having this huge first wave of infection with the pathogen none of us have ever seen before. None of our bodies have has ever experienced before. And we have to go through this gauntlet of death and destruction until at the end of that, what's going to emerge is people who have some kind of immunity to it. You know, that's that's what's going forward. Whether that's from a vaccine, we do it sort of through modern medicine with a vaccine or just by having the pathogen pass through our populations. Um, and so since different societies do that at different levels with different pathogens, you each kind of get used to your own pathogen, right? I mean, especially in the period before rapid transport between societies. Um, and so that meant that interactions between different peoples 
is not necessarily disruptive. Um, you know, it's not like there's a lot of benefits to interactions between different peoples, um, as as we know, even in modern society, of course. Um, but even back then, you know, in the period before sort of modern industrial culture. But there's one thing that was very dangerous, which is that the stranger's germs would be quite different than the ones that you or your society would be used to, your sort of social immunity. And so you know, that meant that there actually could have been some kind of advantage to keeping people out. That kind of ancient impulse might drive some of our xenophobic tendencies today, although it makes no more sense, of course, because now we are just one big germ pool. As we've seen right now, very vividly, if something emerges in China, even if you shut the whole, you know, the whole province of uh, around Wuhan down, millions of people leak out and come around and it's going to get everywhere else. The best we can do is slow it down, but it, it will spread because we're all sort of connected as one sort of pool of a single global population today. That's a fascinating connection between pandemic and, and your next book, The Next Great Migration, which I really recommend as well. And, which, and they're interesting books to have vis-a-vis -vis one another, as you just said, since with pandemic, so often people want to adopt this view, which they have as you write so historically about migration, of their people have a place and they should stay in that place and not go beyond it. And you paint in the new book how not only is it inevitability, but can be a savior also for people to move and for animals to move um, and so on. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what drew you personally to each of these topics and how your work on disease and on human rights and international politics drew you then to this new topic of migration. Yeah, I mean, the new book really grew out of the old one, and that's been true for each of my books. Each one kind of leads to the next. The Fever came out in 2010. That was a book about malaria. And what interested me about malaria was that it's such an old pathogen. It was one of our earliest pathogens. And so it really shaped our genetics, our bodies, our settlement patterns, our history, and kind of circumvented this idea of biomedicine as like the savior, because of course, we've known how to prevent it and cure it for hundreds of years, but we still have hundreds of thousands of people who get malaria every year. It has not been tamed. Um, and so that story really interested me for those reasons. Um, and then after I finished that book, you know, it just became clear that something new was happening. You know, my family came down with uh, MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, a brand new pathogen that's only recently emerged and modern medicine sort of, you know, doesn't really know what to do about it, um, which my family and I, we experienced firsthand. Cholera had emerged in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, you know, hadn't been seen in Haiti, I think, in over 100 years. Um, and it's sort of, sort of this old disease suddenly coming popping up in this new modern place in this new modern way, and then also we had the H5N7 outbreak of avian influenza. I think that was 1997 or so. But just sort of all around this time, it felt like, oh wait, these pathogens are doing something new. They're you know they're staging this comeback, and so pandemic kind of grew out of that of like looking at well, how does that happen? You know, what is the process? How a microbe that's just living happily in its natural habitat kind of become this death and disruption causing pandemic pathogen. So I wanted to kind of look at that backstory. But then when I when the book came out, I, the reaction I got from a lot of readers was, oh, wow, like that, you scared the shit out of me. I'm not going out anymore. Like I'm staying in, I'm just going to wash my hands and stay inside. And like, there was just this sense of kind of a let me shut down and isolate, that that would be the kind of appropriate response. And that's really, of course, not what I was getting at at all. But it just made it clear to me that we have this idea 
about movement as sort of, you know, automatically a catastrophe. So in 2015, right before a pandemic came out, we saw the quote-unquote migrant crisis in the Mediterranean where because of the Syrian civil war and various changes around in the Middle East that these new migratory pathways had been created and just huge numbers of people trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea. And it became the spectacle, you know, and it kind of took over headlines around the world. And it was immediately called a crisis, right? It was just the migrant crisis, this catastrophe of migration. And there really wasn't any attention to well, can societies absorb these people? Like, could they use them? Could, is there housing? Are there jobs? Would it be better for them to live in, say, Greece as opposed to Syria or Germany as opposed to Syria? You know, none of those questions really mattered. It was a crisis even before we answered any of those questions. And so that immediate kind of conflation of things are on the move and it's scary and it's bad and we have to shut it down really echoed the reaction I had gotten from pandemic, uh, you know, of talking about emerging diseases and that kind of isolationist impulse of containment. Oh, let's shut it down. Don't let people move. You know, this idea of movement as as scary and bad, which which really interested me. And so I started digging into it more and found that really it's it's just the opposite. You know, we we've, we've moved as a species across the landscape for so long and so frequently. And we're just kind of putting that story together. And it's not, you know, one movement out of Africa and then everyone stayed put. It, that's not it at all. We've been moving all along back and forth, North America, back to back to Asia, back to Africa and, and out again. So it's really been this history of continuous movement. And then you have to wonder like, okay, pathogens have been taking advantage of human mobility since we evolved because, of course, they don't have any means of independent locomotion. They need us to move them around. Um, and yet pathogens have not constrained our movement at all. You know, they've constrained our behavior in so many other ways, but they have not constrained our movement at all. And what that tells me on sort of a broad scale is that over the course of our history, that the benefits have outweighed the risks. We only look at the risks. We only look at it through the negative you know, a negative lens, we don't look at the positive part of the equation enough. And it's not just economic, you know, I think that's very reductive to say, okay, yeah, immigrants, yeah, they'll get, you know, they might create jobs or innovation or something like that. It's much, much broader than that. And we see that with wild species, because of course, wild species are moving into new places right now. And it is understood, you know, that that is positive, that that is adapted. Yes, it'll be disruptive in some of those new places that they move into. But we want them to do that because we want them to survive. And we know that if they can't survive because it's getting too hot or too dry where they are, that if they move somewhere else where they can live, that that's good, right? We don't think of it that way when it's human migration because we have this kind of negative attitude towards it of instantly thinking of it as a crisis. So that's sort of how the two books connected and why I wanted to write the migration book. Our impulses to migrate really illustrate the ways in which our societies and the planet as a whole are inseparable and, and interact on a constant basis. But there seems to be an impulse, especially in things like the study of germ theory, to focus very narrowly on the pathogen itself without looking at the bigger picture. Can you talk about the, the need to move beyond this reductionist approach of modern medicine and where we need to go from here? Yeah, and I think it's starting already. And I thought I, this is one of the things that interested me about emerging diseases also is that 
you have to look at it in a broader context because you don't know what the pathogen is. You don't know, you know, what the drug is that's going to neutralize it, you know. And so that's the standard biomedical approach is to isolate and then to to reduce and reduce and reduce whatever is happening to its most minuscule components, you know. So so it's no longer about sort of populations moving in different ways with different demographics and through different social and political reasons. It's this one microbe, this tiny, tiny thing that entered your body and all we have to do is sort of surgically remove it or zap it with killing chemicals, you know, and there's this reductive approach to it which grows out of modern biomedicine. And that's been highly successful in medicine. You know, I don't want to you know, diminish it at all. It's been hugely successful. And so it makes sense that that is the paradigm. But I think what's happening with new diseases emerging today is that, you know, they are being driven by environmental factors and social and political forces. And by trying to reduce them to just one germ that we can isolate and then surgically remove or kill is going to miss that bigger picture. And that might actually be more effective in addressing a lot of these problems because we can't come up with a drug or a vaccine fast enough. So you see something like coronavirus today, like we will get a vaccine and a drug treatment eventually, but by then millions of people are going to have already gotten this virus and hundreds of thousands will likely have died of it. It's not enough. If we want to actually contain these epidemics of new pathogens, we need to look at the broader drivers. We need to look at how we're moving around and how we're interacting with the environment and change those things. That will actually be faster and would save more lives than waiting for the new drug to come out. You know, by the time the new drug comes out and the new vaccine comes out, this first wave is going to exact a huge toll on us already. Are there particular scientists or organizations working on this effort that you find inspiring or as a source of hope? Oh, absolutely. There's a bunch. But my favorite is um, an organization called EcoHealth Alliance in New York City. They have programs all over the world. And what they do, they're biomedical experts, but also veterinary and wildlife experts. So they're really bringing together these two fields that have so often stayed apart. And this is part of a larger movement in global health, generally called One Health. And the idea is that human health really um, is connected to the health of our animals and our, our livestock and our wildlife and our ecosystems and other societies as well. So, you know, this idea that human health is cocooned within this context of connections between the health of other parts of our natural worlds around us. Um, and that's been taking off in, you know, a variety of sort of high level global health agencies like the WHO and CDC and like, you know, others have taken up One Health as a new kind of paradigm. It's sort of starting to slowly shift, you know, and I think the pandemic that we're experiencing now should help grow it even more. Yeah, really, really inspiring and really critical work. To close, we ask each guest to recommend, you know, different books, articles, films, or other works that have had a significant impact on how you understand and approach your work. Would you please share a few of your recommendations? Oh, my goodness. Um, there's so many that I don't know if I could pick one out. Let me just look at my bookshelf real quick here. <laughs> I was thinking we should have sent you this one in advance. <laughs> yeah, if you send me Sorry about advance. that. <laughs> I mean, of course, like the kind of seminal work in terms of epidemics is William McNeil's book, Plagues and Peoples. That came out many years ago, but it's still amazing. And it lays it all out. And it was new when he was talking about it, you know, this idea that pathogens 
shape history was a new idea. Like it wasn't, you know, that wasn't something anyone had considered before he wrote that book. And that kind of opened up the door to this whole field of history that looks at how diseases have shaped us in different ways. Um, But his was the first, and it's still a fantastic book to this day if you read it. The other book, actually, I will recommend, which I just reread, and which is one of my favorite books, which is uh, the Thomas Kuhn book on scientific revolutions. You know what book I'm talking about? I think it's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The Structure. Yeah, yeah. The Structure of Science. And I just think, you know, right now, people are paying attention to science in a way that is new right now. We are seeing that a little bit with the climate crisis also that, you know, we have people like Greta Thunberg saying, listen to the scientists, listen to the scientists, and this idea that we have to put science front and center. Um, And I think we're seeing that today with the pandemic of like, you know, there's this real you know, yearning for scientific expertise and that we, we want their answers. You know, we want their expertise and we're very frustrated when our political leaders don't listen to the scientists and don't put the scientists front and center. And I think that is really, really positive. At the same time, what we're not talking enough about is that it's not just that we have to lift up the scientists and scientific authority Yes, we we need to do that in our policymaking, but we also need to lift up scientific literacy among the people so that everyone can understand what, you know, the basics of epidemiology and the basics of the climate crisis and can read an abstract for a scientific paper and get it. You know, that's really, to me, not that much to ask. And I think elevating science is sort of elite expertise and authority that we have to just take at face value and listen to everything they say. That's not quite it either. What we want is a sort of dynamic interaction between scientific expertise and an educated public that's informed about science and can say, well, okay, that, you know, the ethics of that experiment, I don't like it. Or we want to use this kind of science in towards this social end or this policy goal or whatever, and be literate enough to participate in all that. And I think reading books like Thomas Kuhn's um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which, of course, I read as a philosophy undergrad, but I just recently reread it. And it's just brilliant in terms of helping us understand how science functions and to understand that science also is a human endeavor. It's not um, sort of divine truths that they somehow unearth. It's, It's a method. Humans do it. It has a sociality to it. It has politics to it. It has all of that to it, too. Um, And I think we all need to educate ourselves to become scientifically literate and also to understand science as human activity. Because the danger I see is that if we elevate scientific expertise without understanding it as a human activity, then when there are uncertainties, when there are missteps, which there will be because science is an iterative process, it doesn't render the right result straight away, then, you know, all of that gets shattered, you know, and then you, then you see people like populist right-wing leaders saying like, oh, the science, scientists were wrong, you know, how dare they, they were wrong, we shouldn't listen to them ever again. And that's, we don't want that either. You know, we don't want this like uh, seesaw back and forth of like, they're always right, or they're always wrong. They are experts who you know, give us knowledge that's produced in a certain way, but it is a human activity and we need to kind of understand it as that. Sonja Shaw, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was lovely. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. 
We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can learn more about Sonia Shaw and her work. Thanks for listening.